have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. As you turn there, let me open up our time together uh, with a word of prayer. Father God, we thank you for your loving kindness to us. Uh, we thank you for uh, the Lord's Supper, Lord, which we're going to preach and teach and, uh, and then um, partake in this morning. Uh, so, Father, we pray, Lord, that you would open our eyes to the spiritual realities uh, behind the signs and the symbols of what it means to be a new community um, formed in the fashion of Christ Jesus our Lord. So, Father, Lord, to give us understanding, give us wisdom, give us discernment, uh, speak to us, and call us ever closer to Jesus. It's in his wonderful and mighty name we pray. Amen. Well, our sermon series is titled, The Signs of the New Community. And as I explained last week, Jesus was coming to establish a new community. He was not coming to save individuals, but rather to save a group uh, of people, a group of individuals. Uh, and this group would be uh, a group unlike any other people group ever uh, on the face of the planet. Uh, this group would not be formed along national or ethnic lines, nor would they be formed by geographical boundaries. Instead, this new community would be formed and established by one thing. How do those within the community respond to the good news of Christ Jesus? For we all have a reaction when we're presented with the gospel, when we're presented with the story of, of being God's enemies, being far from God, cast away from God. But because of Christ, we are now able to be called not enemies, but friends of God. But it isn't because of anything you've done or anything you've earned, but only because of the, of the price that Christ himself has paid for our treason. And so when we're presented with this story, the story of the scriptures, the story of, uh, of, of all of creation speaks to Christ, the entire book of the Bible, the, the, every story in the Bible uh, is a story about Jesus. Like that's the interpretive key. If you want to understand your Old Testament, you have to understand that they were writing about Jesus. Um, apart from Jesus, the Old Testament will not make sense uh, ultimately, uh, every, uh, every story within it points to what God is doing in the world through the person and work of Christ. And so when we're presented with that story, the question is, do you believe it? Do you believe it? And the scriptures tell of two possible ways that we can respond. Either when we hear the news of Christ, uh, we continue in our rebellion and our treason against the Lord of the universe, or we respond in faith and repentance. If we respond in faith and repentance, then we show the evidence that the Holy Spirit has actually begun the work uh, within us and will continue it until the day of completion. But then what happens? What happens after responding, that initial response to the saving work of Christ? Where do you go from there? Well, for a lot of people, they think that's it. They, they, they are now left on their own to try to figure out growth in Christ and try to keep the commandments and try to do all of these things, but that couldn't be farther from the truth. Because the Lord speaks uh, continuously about this new community, this, these, this new person, this new people that he's forming. Not in the terms of the individual, or person here, or a person there, but as, as a group of people. In fact, the New Testament uses word pictures over and over again that assume and even require that Christians join together in real and vital ways. Take, for example, uh, in Romans chapter 12, if we are members of a physical body... How could we ever survive if we become detached from it? If we are bricks, in Ephesians chapter 2, of God's building, how could we support the structure if we're not connected to it? Do you see how even the illustrations that the scripture uses, it assumes and even requires that you not go it alone. Thus, membership and participation in a local church like this 
is something that the New Testament assumes all believers would naturally connect to their faith in following Christ. More than that, a membership uh, brings with it all the benefits of being part of something much bigger than yourself. And that the goal of this sermon series is to understand from the scriptures what is our greatest, which, which is our greatest source of truth, what the signs of this new community indeed are. Many of us as Christians understand what the Bible commands us to believe. Some of us understand what it commands us to do individually. But what does the Bible command us to do collectively? In other words, what are the signs and symbols of the new community? Well, first off, last week we looked at baptism, which is extremely fitting for us as we celebrated the baptism of Alec and Charlie. Um, and, and what were they doing? What were they saying as they were being dunked into the water? Uh, what story was being told about them? What story was being told about you and your participation in it? Now, as we said last week, what was happening as they stepped into the baptismal waters, and one of them slid into the waters, was they were outwardly proclaiming by means of a visible act what the Lord had already inwardly proclaimed by means of giving them a new heart. Also, they were telling the story of redemption, of Christ's literal crucifixion and death and burial in the waters, but also of his literal resurrection from that death by being raised up out of the waters and walking here and now in newness of life. Furthermore, their baptism last week, along with our glad celebration of it and acceptance of it, was an affirmation of what Christ has done in their lives. You see, by you being here last week and being a joyful part of celebrating uh, and accepting them uh, and, and affirming their baptism, what you have done is accepted and affirmed them into the new community that Christ is building. I think many of us underestimate the power and the symbolism of all of this. We miss the reality that the power that is contained in the church as a gathered body, as they rejoice and clap and shout and praise to King Jesus, who has rescued yet another one from the flames of hell. Charlie and Alec were not baptized into the ethereal or the untethered reality of just Christianity out there. No, they were baptized into the kingdom of God in the local, visible, and tangible kingdom here at Calvary Baptist Church. In other words, baptism is the symbol of entry into the kingdom of Christ. It's not the actual entry into it. That happens at conversion when Christ uh, saves a person. But the visible entry into the kingdom of Christ happens in baptism. But what other sign and symbol exists to mark this new group of people, this, this new community? And that's what brings us to this morning, the Lord's Supper. If baptism is a symbol of entry into a new community, then the Lord's Supper is the ongoing and repeated symbol of the new community of covenant renewal. Of covenant renewal. Look with me at 1 Corinthians chapter 11. If you're there, say amen. Need more time? That's on you. It's been like five minutes. 1 Corinthians, look with me in verse 17. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 17. But in the following instructions, I do not command you because when you come together, it is not... I do not commend you because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, 
which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also he took the cup after saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined, so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the, things, about the other things, I will give directions when I, t- when I come. So this is God's word for us this morning, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Paul's uh, teaching here breaks down into three categories. First, he gives a rebuke, and then he gives teaching, and then finally he gives a warning. So Paul's addressing the Corinthian church in the manner of the Lord's Supper here in chapter 11. And in verses 17 through 22, he is rebuking them for the way in which they're celebrating, or at least they think that they're celebrating the Lord's Supper. In fact, he tells them in verse 20 that though they think that they are eating the supper, they actually aren't. And he explains why they aren't in verse 21. It's because that there's no unity. There's no unity in the Lord's Supper. He says each of you is eating his own meal, uh, which Paul means that the, the idea behind that is that they're not eating it together. Moreover, some people are, are, aren't eating at all. And even still, some others are, are getting drunk. Right, the implication of that, at least in some ways, that the Corinthians were having, that some Corinthians were having more of their fair share of the wine, while others had none. And so Paul rebukes them in verse 22, saying, he will not, indeed he cannot, can commend such, such behavior. This is Paul's rebuke. But then he begins to teach them in verse 23 through verse 26. And in these verses, Paul lays out for them what the Lord's Supper is, what it, what it means. He reminds them of who is the one who instituted the supper when he says, I received from the Lord. The idea here is that, that Paul isn't just making this up as he's going along. And neither should the Corinthians. You see the point. He's saying that, the, that, that this came from Christ himself. And so we must follow as he has told us how to do it. And Paul's idea is that I've already told you this, but let me restate it again. He recalls for them that in the breaking of the bread, Jesus said, this is my body, which is broken for you, And he reminds them that in the cup is the new covenant in my blood. You see, what Paul's doing is he's reminding them of what the heart of the Lord's Supper is, which is namely a sign and symbol of the death of Christ. You see, this, not necess- this is um, not necessarily the elements themselves, right? We get, we get so caught up, right, the, for, for centuries of the church. We were caught up on, like, is, 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 is Jesus actually in the blood? Is, he, is his, his actual body. Listen, Jesus said a whole lot of other statements too, like, uh, like I am the door. Why does no one ever say, is, is, like, which door? Why is it only with the bread and the white? Well, what is this? Like, he says all kinds of statements. He says, I am the way. Was Jesus an actual way or was he an actual person? It's only with the bread and the... Anyways, the, the point is, it's not in the elements necessarily themselves, but in what the elements are pointing to. Broken bread points to a body which would be broken. A cup of wine points to blood, which would be poured out. You see, Paul makes the connection between the elements of the Lord's Supper and the reality of the death of Christ explicit in verse 26. He says, when you do eat the bread and when you do drink the cup, he said, you aren't just eating and drinking, 
but you are proclaiming something. You're, you're, you're speaking something without words. The problem with the Corinthians is that they thought that the Lord's Supper was like any other supper. They missed the reality underlying what it is they thought they were doing. The Lord's Supper is primarily about, the teaching here, Paul's point is, is that the Lord's Supper is primarily about proclaiming the death of Christ. And then he gives them this warning. He lands the plan of his instructions to the Corinthians by giving these instructions and warnings in verses 27 through 32. He gives warnings about understanding the seriousness with which they should approach the table. He warns them that since the Lord's Supper, right, you see this in verse 27 where he says, uh, 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 whoever therefore, right, he's connecting it to exactly what he just said. Because we are proclaiming his death, therefore whoever would approach this thing, he wants them to make sure that they're not doing this in an unworthy manner. What he's saying is that the proclamation of the Lord's death that there's a way to proclaim his death unworthily. That's what he's saying. And this is exactly what the Corinthians were doing. It is this type of uh, taking unworthily that Paul tells, uh, uh, leads Paul to tell them that this is why many of them are sick, many are weak, and even some has called physical death. Because they've been, they've been partaking of the Lord's Supper in a sinful and unworthily manner. Paul's point is that there's a very, this is a very serious undertaking of which there are real-life consequences if the Lord's commandments are not followed. And so Paul tells them that a, that a person must examine himself first, and only after having reflected and examined himself should he then partake in the Lord's Supper. So three points to make. That is the exposition of the text. So there's three points I want to make about this, uh, and then we'll take the Lord's Supper Together, um, the, number one, the Lord's Supper is a covenant renewal. It is a covenant renewal. Number two, the Lord's Supper is focused on foolishness or power. It's focused on foolishness or power. And finally, we'll look at the Lord's Supper as a celebration. So number one, the Lord's Supper is a covenant renewal. Between the Old and New Testament are many continuities and discontinuities. What I mean by that is that there are some things that happened in the Old Testament that continued on into the New Testament, into today, the life of the church. But there's discontinuities as well. It means some things stopped. For example, consider again baptism. A baptism is the sign of entrance into the new community. So was there a similar or corresponding sign in the Old Testament? A sign that marked who were the people of God and who weren't? To which the answer is, yes, of course. Well, what sign was that? Well, if you know your Bibles, or, uh, then you know that the sign of circumcision in the Old Testament was the sign that, that these people belonged to God and these ones over here did not. And God himself established this. This is not man's idea. This is God's idea. Listen to what he says in, to, to Abraham in Genesis chapter 17. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not your offspring. Both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not, uns, who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off 
from his people. He has broken my covenant. In these verses, God is establishing circumcision as a sign of what? What's the point in it? Well, he tells us there in the text is that this is the sign, the covenant between God and his people. This would be how you know who's in and who's out. A covenant is a kind of promise that one person or a group of people aims to keep even when the other doesn't. It includes both blessings and curses. But notice in that last verse uh, of Genesis that I read, uh, if, if, if one refuses to become circumcised, what happens to him? What happens? Well, the text tells us that, that they are cut off from the people of God. So the symbol of baptism has within its roots the sign of circumcision. Right? So, so, so understand, the people of God are always marked by some way, from the Old Testament into the New Testament. The discontinuity comes between it's no longer circumcision which marks us, but rather the visible sign of baptism. And yet, and there's more discontinuities too, right? For example, the old sign was limited to, to just men, males, since women are unable to be circumcised. But that no longer holds true in the new sign. Women can be baptized and should be baptized. So baptism has an Old Testament symbol which marked entrance into the new community. Likewise as well, the Lord's Supper has an Old Testament symbol which marks it as a covenant renewal. In Leviticus chapter 3, uh, I, I debated on reading, the whole chapter is really important here, but... You can go home and read that later. Uh, Leviticus chapter 3 describes various types of fellowship offerings. Right? This term is variously translated between like fellowship or peace or well-being, which we get from the, word, the Hebrew word shalom, which means wholeness or, or peace. It establishes fellowship through its atoning significance and exhibits fellowship, this, this peace with God. Right? These, these uh, sacrifices established because of its atoning significance, establishes peace with God and the worshiper, through a covenant meal. You see, there's four types of major sacrifices in the, in the Old Testament, especially the book of Leviticus. You had the, the sacrifices of burnt offering, you had the sacrifices uh, of sin, the sacrifice of guilt, and the sacrifice of peace. And this is the only offering, in Leviticus chapter 3, the only offering where a worshiper eats part of the sacrifice himself. The sacrificial offering becomes a meal in which bread and drink are present. The meal celebrates the relationship between the participants in the meal and everyone shares in the meal. So you have the Lord sharing in the meal, you have the priest sharing in the meal, and you have the worshiper sharing in this meal in Leviticus chapter 3. It's a meal where God, the priest, and the worshiper share peace, if you will, through, through a meal. It exhibits the harmony and peace and well-being of the relationship. The covenant is renewed through eating the sacrifi sacrificial animal. Right, and this is all, the, the Passover itself, right, established after God rescued his people from Egypt, he, he established the Passover, right? The Passover itself may be regarded as this type of sacrifice. And this is exactly what the Lord's Supper is, a renewal of our covenant with the Lord God Almighty, not on our merits or achievements, but on Christ. So, so, so understand this. When we come before the Lord's table, like we will in just a, a, a bit, is it's not just merely going through the motions. What are we doing when we eat the bread? What are we doing when we drink the, the, the juice together? We're reminding ourselves of the Lord, but we're also recommitting ourselves to that commitment. We're renewing the covenant. You see this throughout the entire Old Testament. Time and time again, uh, kings would call the people of God back together to do what? To renew the covenants 
Right? We've been preaching through 1 Samuel, which we're going to get back to next week, um, where, where continuously, one of, the, one of the things that Samuel does is he continues to bring the people together to renew the covenant. Listen, that's exactly what we do every time we take the Lord's Supper. To eat the sacrifice is a matter of covenantal commitment. One cannot eat of the table of the Lord and from the table of demons. To do both would provoke the covenant Lord to jealousy for his covenant people. You see, to eat from the Lord's table means to be committed to the Lord's covenant. To drink the Lord's cup is to renew our covenant with God through Christ. Just as the fellowship offering in Leviticus chapter 3 appears again and again at key redemptive historical moments as covenantal renewal. So time we take of the Lord, so every time we take the Lord's Supper, it is a covenant renewal for the covenant people. Right? And this is why I believe the Lord's Supper is also only for those who have actually been baptized. Think about it. If baptism is the visible sign of entry into the new community, and if the Lord's Supper is a visible uh, co- uh, reminder and a, a, a renewal of that covenantal reality, then what does it mean to take the Lord's Supper if you haven't first entered into the new community? This might be a bit of an edgy example for some of you, but stick with me because it holds true. To take the Lord's table, to partake of the Lord's supper prior to being baptized is a lot like having premarital sex. Think about it. In, in marriage, sex is a renewing of the covenant between man and woman. So having sex before marriage is like trying to renew something which has never actually happened. Similarly, partaking in the Lord's Supper without being baptized into the church is a visible renewal of the covenant, as a visible renewal of the covenant, without ever publicly identifying with that covenant. It's like showing up in the Old Testament temple and wanting to give a sacrifice with the Jewish people without being circumcised. You see, well, what happens to those who refuse circumcision? You're cut off from those people. So the Lord's Supper is a covenant renewal. Number two, the Lord's Supper is focused on foolishness or power. The Lord's Supper is focused on foolishness or power. Paul said in our text that we proclaim the Lord's death. What this means is that every time we take the Lord's Supper, you know what we're saying without actually using words? What we're saying is Jesus, the Son of God, was crucified on a cross. Think about that. A few months ago, I was talking with a Muslim down in Columbus, and the conversation turned to religion. We began to talk about Jesus and within Islam, uh, uh, there's, there's two big problems that they have with Christianity. Two big problems. The first is that they think that, they think that we believe in multiple gods. Right? They think we believe in three, three gods and not one triune God who exists in three persons. Right? The central statement of the Islam religion is what? There is no God but Allah and Muhammad is his messenger. Right? That's the central statement of faith in the Islam, Islamic religion. And so they think that when we talk about Jesus is God, that there must be more than one God. That's their first big problem that they have with Christianity. But the second big problem Islam has with Christianity is with how Christians view the death of Christ. I don't know if you know this, but the Quran actually talks about Jesus. It teaches about Christ, our Savior. In the Quran, Jesus is described as the Messiah, miraculously born of a virgin, performing miracles, accompanied by his disciples, Listen, re- even rejected by the Jewish religious establishment, but not as crucified and not as dying on the cross. 
nor resurrected. Rather, they teach that Jesus was miraculously saved by God and ascended into heaven. And so the second big problem that they have is that we believe Jesus actually died. And as I was talking to this man, he he brought this exact point up. In fact, he said the words uh, that that, that it would be foolish to think that that God would let Jesus die. And this is exactly what Paul says uh, the opening words to 1 Corinthians in verse 18, chapter 1, verse 18. He says, for the word of the cross is, in the, the old King James Version says, is foolishness. In the ESV it says folly. The cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So every time we gather, think about it, every time we gather to take the Lord's Supper, we are visibly preaching through eating and drinking the Lord's Supper what looks to be either utter foolishness or we are preaching without words the power of God. You see, the cross is foolishness to the world. In fact, the, the cross causes people to lie about who they really are, their sinful condition. The cross seems so foolish to people that they lie and claim that sin is not really a problem at all. The cross, however, reveals the lie that mankind has believed since the beginning. They, if sin does not exist, think about it, if sin does not exist, then there's no need for the cross. If sin is not a horrible thing, the cross is foolishness. The mere existence of the cross reveals the lie of those who deny sin and who deny its awfulness. At the cross, Christ becomes becomes sin for us. In other words, God deals with sin at the cross through the shed blood of his son. So a look at the cross tells us what God thinks exactly about our sins. No other means was available. Think about it. No other option God have reached into his toolbox to provide a means of our salvation without a perfect sacrifice. And Jesus was that sacrifice for no other perfect life has ever existed. It's been interesting to note how difficult it is for people to admit when they sin. And this is not really surprising, right? We've been blame shifters since the beginning. Think about it. Every time we sin, we always like, well, it's, it's not my fault. I was raised that way. Or... Well, this is just how I was treated, so that's how why I reacted that way. This goes all the way back to the beginning. Because this is exactly what Adam did, is it not? When God approached him and said, what have you done? What did Adam say? He said, psh, psh, you know, Lord, the, the woman you gave me. And in so doing, he places blame not only on his wife, but also places blame on God. I mean, you look at the state of our nation today. Like, we live in a nation full of people who refuse to accept responsibility. We live in a generation of, of, of blame shifting to the extreme. But every time we take the supper, what we're saying, really and truly saying, is nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. This is why it's so vital to understand who's actually supposed to be taking the supper. Because if in taking the supper we are saying, I believe in Jesus' death and resurrection for me, and because of me, on, on, on behalf of me, he died, but then our lives don't line up with that statement, we make ourselves hypocrites and we rob the cross of its power. That's why throughout the history of the church, uh, you, you have what, what theologians have called fencing the table. The table refers to the Lord's table, and fencing it means denying the ability of someone who wants to come and and take uh, the the body and the blood in their hands and and partake in the elements of the supper and being told 
they can't. The church has long understood that the Lord's Supper is a sign of believing in the death and resurrection of Christ. So then those who do not know God or who claim to know God but live as if they don't trust in Christ, when they used to come and try to take the Lord's Supper, I read about this in the Puritan days, right? the elders and the deacons of the church would simply not allow them to partake. You might be thinking, well, Pastor, that seems harsh. Who can know the heart of a man? But think about the reality of what the Lord's Supper actually is and what it's actually saying. If, if when we take the Lord's Supper, we're proclaiming this is what Christ has done for me, what does it say when your life doesn't line up with that? Let's say, for example, that one of you decided uh, you no longer believe that Jesus was the only way to heaven. Let's just say you shifted in your beliefs, um, and, and you, just, you just think, well, you know what, Pastor? Muslims, Christians, all of them probably going to the same place when they die. All of them going to heaven. And let's say that, 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 that that's the sort of mysticism the, uh, that you begin to believe in. Remember, the Lord's Supper is a focus on either foolishness or power, but it can't be both. It can't appear as both. So if you shift in your beliefs of who Jesus is or what, God, what the good news that God has done for us in Christ, and then you come to the Lord's table to take the elements, what does it say about a church and about a people in the church that allow you to openly blaspheme the name of God in this way? Furthermore, let's say you hold on to this idea that all religions are going to heaven and so if a church is properly fencing the table, you're denied the elements. What does this cause to happen in you, you who've shifted? Sure, you would be shocked, angry, appalled. Who, who are they to tell me I can't? But what is that supposed to lead to? Sure, your feelings and sensibilities would be hurt. But ultimately, the purpose in all of this, as Paul tells us in verse 31, the purpose of all of this discipline is to lead to repentance. Look at verse 31. He says, but if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. You see, Paul's point is that uh, to refuse entry into the table should actually be a means by which we say, okay, I'm not living right. Uh, My life does not accord with the gospel of Christ. I was recently asked if I thought that a man and woman living together but not married should be allowed to take the Lord's Supper. And my response was that anyone who is living in open rebellion and open sin against God should not be taking the Lord's Supper. This would be what Paul's meaning when he says eating and drinking unworthily. It should be noted that all of us sin, right? All of us sin, and yet I wouldn't argue that none of us should take the table. The difference comes in with are we repentant of our sins? Remember, the fruit of do we have a new heart in Christ? Do we uh, truly believe in the grace uh, that that God has given to us in and through the work of Christ is always repentance. It's always repentance. And so when the old nature within us begins to rise up and we find ourselves in, in deep and sometimes dark, desperate sinning, does that mean we can't take the Lord's Supper? Well, the difference is Are you repenting of that sin? Do you hate the sin you once loved? Or are you walking openly in rebellion and high-handed treason to the king of the universe? I know I ended the discussion with this does not exclude people from attending church, but it should be a visible and pressing reminder of each time the supper is taken that they are not taking it because of a refusal to repent and believe and follow Christ. 
Part of the reason for the moral decline within churches, I believe, is an abdication of the church and of leaders in the church to effectively call people to repentance by denying access to the Lord's table. Think about it. When we like openly let like uh, people who are walking in open rebellion of sin, when we let them come to the table, what does that speak about God? What does that speak about repentance? What does that speak about what it actually means to follow Christ? Well, I'll tell you what it does. It, it speaks like, I can do whatever I want. I can live however I want. You see, it's in denying the table that, that we, we actually call people up and into repentance. Finally, and in conclusion, the Lord's Supper is a celebration. Look back at verse 26. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The verse ends here with saying that we proclaim his death until he comes. Do you hear the promise? It's a promise that Jesus has not abandoned us, but rather, to the contrary, he's coming back. Jesus himself, when he instituted the supper, Matthew 26, 29, he says, I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it, new with you in my Father's kingdom. Oh, friends, brothers and sisters in Christ, can you imagine what a day that will be? We will sit down with Jesus in his Father's kingdom. No tears, no heartache, no pain, no loss, no death, for the former things will have all passed away, and all things will be created new. Can you imagine what the banquet hall will look like on that day? Can you imagine what the wine on that day will taste like? And it's coming. The promise is true. It's coming. Jesus is coming to judge, as the Apostle Creed states, from there he will come to judge the living and the dead. But for the believer, for those who are following after Christ, that coming is not a fearful thing. It's not a worrisome thing. It's not something which we should get all bent out of shape about. As a matter of fact, we should actually long for and rejoice for that day to come. The other day we were sitting around at the dinner table, and my kids asked me, "Uh, uh, Dad, how's the Bible end? I said, like, uh, like, what do you mean? I said, what's the last words in the Bible, Dad? I said, uh, I don't know, come Lord Jesus quickly, something like that. And they said, what? I said, yeah. So I opened it up, Revelation 22, 20, 21. He who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come Lord Jesus. Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. You see, every time we gather around the Lord's table, We're reminded of our own sin, of our own shortcomings, of our own failures. But then we're also reminded that Christ's body was broken for us. We're reminded that his blood was spilled and poured out for us. Every time we gather around the Lord's table, we're celebrating what the cross has actually and truly and finally accomplished. We're renewing our commitment to the covenant. We're focused on the power of the cross, and we are celebrating the finished work of Christ. Let's pray. Father God, as we come to the, the end of this passage, Father, I pray that you would speak to our lives through the Holy Spirit, through the power of the Holy Spirit, that you would uh, transition us from one degree of glory into another. Lord, as we gather around the table in just a few moments, I, I pray, Lord, that we would be uh, encouraged and reminded once again that we are proclaiming something. We're not merely going through the motions. We're not merely just doing this to be doing this throughout the centuries of the church 
brothers and sisters, followers of Christ have gathered week in and week out and taken of this same body, the same blood, the, the same Lord's Supper. And they've longed for and looked for and celebrated that Christ is coming again. And so, Lord, I, I pray that you would press us deep into our guts. That as we take the Lord's Supper, Father, Lord, we're not just uh, doing it for nothing. But there's something, uh, the, the, the signs, uh, the symbols are pointing back to the signs of uh, real, true reality that Christ's work on the cross is finished. We're not sacrificing in the supper. We're not, uh, we're not, you, you are, you, this, this Christ is not once again being uh, sacrificed for us, for that has been done once and for all, as the book of Hebrews tells us. So, Father, Lord, we pray you would uh, bless us today. Um, let us be reminded. Let us renew our own covenant commitments uh, for this week and in the month ahead. And we pray all this in Christ's wonderful name. Amen. Amen. At this time, we'll ask.